Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Oh, hey, welcome to Bergen Park Church. We're glad you're here. My shirt is now caught. There we go. We did it. You made it. Happy Thanksgiving. Hope you guys have a fantastic week this week, uh, gathering with family or friends or just having a restful, a restful week. Hey, I want to share a couple of things, I think in the bulletin as well. Uh, last week, I kind of hit you up, some of you that love decorating, and I had you raise your hand. You remember that? And you raise your hand and you volunteered to come decorate. And so in the bulletin, there is a little QR code that you can, I don't know how that works exactly, put your phone over and you can come decorate us with us. I think it's, we're cutting trees down this week. We put all natural trees up, and so that's a lot of, it's a blast. So anyways, uh, check that out. It's in your bulletin. Love to have you. And then also, if you can go to the value slide, which should be the next slide. There we go. This week, we're going to be sending out a survey about our values as a church, and these are our five values. And the reason we're sending this out is, one, to try to understand the way that you understand these values, how well you see them at play in our church, And if you have suggestions about what we can do, or if there is one that is particularly meaningful to you, we'd love to get your feedback. So this week, we're going to send out the initial survey. It's going to come out by itself. And so if you would fill that out, and then we'll probably continue to send it until everybody's filled it out. But anyways, we would love to get your feedback because these are values that we don't stick on the wall. We really want to, we want them to be a part of our life, a part of how we live and engage in this community. And so we need your feedback to talk through them and to understand them together. Have you ever felt so desperate that to hope was to fear? Have you ever felt so desperate that the idea of even venturing to hope seemed too frightening to give yourself to? Well, that's where our story is today. We're going to encounter two people who are at a place of desperation. Life has taken them to a place where no one else can help. And so they're drawn to Jesus. But you know, when you hope in something, hope is about the future. It's about what you don't have. But with hope is always mixed a little bit of fear. Because what if it doesn't work out? What if the thing I'm hoping for and longing for doesn't show up. And so with hope, there is always a measure of fear, but in hope, there is always a picture of need that we hope because there's some need that we're we're hoping will be fulfilled. And that's where our our story is today. We're going to introduce you to two stories that in the New Testament are always intertwined. We saw that last week. If you looked last week, we're talking about the storm that Jesus calms the storm. And then he goes across the sea, and then he actually calms this man who has an oppressed spirit. And those stories are always interlapped. Now, the stories we're going to look at today are also interlapped, and they're put together in a very important way. And you'll see this in Matthew, and you see it in Mark and Luke, those gospels. And the stories play out like this. The first story is going to begin, and then the second story is going to take place in the middle of the first story. And so then the first story is going to end. Does that make sense? So the first story begins, the second story comes in, and it completes itself, and then the first story begins to end. And the reason the gospel writers, when they do that, what they're saying is the middle story is the one where the main idea is found. And we're going to pull out of that the main thought 
of this passage. Now, let me introduce you to the story a little bit. It's about two people, two sets of people, really. One is a man named Jairus, and his daughter is dying, and he comes to Jesus. The other is about an unnamed woman that Jesus calls daughter, and he heals her. So there's a parallel, two daughters, Jairus' daughter, a daughter that Jesus calls daughter. And both of them are unclean, if that language makes sense to you. Uh, The woman's unclean because she has a flow of blood. And it made her unclean in her culture. And this little girl is unclean because she dies. And a dead body was considered ceremonially unclean. And there's another parallel. If you look at the story, if you want to jump there, we're in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. There's also a parallel of 12. The little girl is 12 years old. And this woman has been suffering for 12 years, which means when this little girl was born, this woman's condition began. And the New Testament writers are putting these stories together to draw out one main thought. And I want to touch on that thought before we read it so that as we read it, you see it. And one of the main ideas in this story is about fear and faith. And it actually began last week. If you were here, we looked at that story of Jesus calming the sea. And the disciples justifiably were terrified. Now we find out they're terrified not just because the storm was raging. They're terrified because they believe the storm means God doesn't care. And so they actually ask. I mean, they're actually saying, you know, do you care about us? Does it matter to you that we die? They say that to Jesus. And what was Jesus' response? You still have no faith? And then in the next story, Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee and he comes to this community and there's a man with an unclean spirit and it's a very violent, violent picture, which is a picture of what evil does to us. Evil is violent. Evil is at times absurd. And these people were terrified of this man and Jesus heals the man. He's in his right mind. But instead of putting their faith in Jesus, they're terrified of Jesus and their fear overcomes their faith. Now, fast forward to today, we have two stories where fear and faith, and see, this is how the gospel writers work. Realize they're not just putting stories together chronologically. Mark is sitting on the other side of the resurrection, and he's saying, you know, how can I help Bergen Park Church figure out who Jesus is? Okay, I'm going to organize these stories in a certain way that we start to see who he is. Now, in the stories today, we also see fear and faith, because Jairus, this synagogue leader, comes to Jesus, and why? Because his daughter is dying. And in fact, she's going to die. And at that point, somebody says, hey, leave the teacher alone. He can't do anything. And what does Jesus say? Don't fear, only believe. Believe like who? Not like the disciples, right? The storm? Not like the people across the lake? Not like Jairus, but like an unnamed woman. She is the example of faith that Mark is putting forward. And that spins the values of the world upside down. That the person that most exemplifies trust in God is a woman who has had a disease for 12 years. She's lived in shame and guilt. She has been isolated. Jesus sees something in her that is beautiful. He calls it out and he calls it out to us. She is our example that we need to follow. That's shocking. Listen, in a first century world, what he's emphasizing would be shocking. Hopefully we can jump into it. You guys ready now? Did I set it up well? You guys ready for this? That's the story. Those are the stories. 
we're going to jump into it and see how this plays out. Now, real quick, there is kind of an outline you can put together. It starts out in desperation. Both stories start with a desperate situation, and desperation goes to despair. It goes from bad, desperation to worse, despair. And then it leads to deliverance. So desperation, despair, deliverance. So let's, let's jump into it. We're in Mark chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 21. You guys good? All right, let's do it. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and a throng about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I just touch his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, hey, who touched me? Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed from your disease. Now, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some, someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all out and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray for you. Would you pray for me? Father, thank you for the privilege of being here together. This isn't so much an event. It's, it's an opportunity for us to worship you, to be together. We are the body of Christ. We're a family. And in this family, there are each one of us are at different places of life and struggle. Some may be here and feeling the desperation, the longing to hope, but the fear to hope. And Father, help us to see Jesus clearly. And in seeing him clearly, give us the faith to reach out and to trust Jesus can 
and he wants to deliver us. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you feel the desperation? Two stories. Absolute desperation. I can't think of anything worse as a father than my child near the point of death. And Jesus is coming back again. If you notice in verse 21, he's coming back across the Sea of Galilee. And when he arrives, the crowds are still there. Because the crowds love Jesus, but they don't really understand him. So what Mark does is he puts a big contrast between the crowds and what they want and what it means to be a disciple. And if you've been following with us, a disciple is somebody who sits at the feet of Jesus. He said, these are my mothers, right? These are my brothers and sisters. It's those who are with me and they listen to him. And they listen to him when they're in a storm. And they listen, to, and this is hard. When you're in a storm and you're afraid, it's hard to listen. My ears close really quick when I'm afraid. Or when my child is at the point of death, do you realize how hard it is to listen to God? Or when you've been in a condition for 12 years like this woman has in which she's found no solution, how hard it is. But see, disciples are those that in no matter the circumstances, we try the best we can to listen. That's where this woman is. That's where Jairus is. Jairus, Jairus, I don't know how to pronounce that. Anyways, I'll say it about five different ways if that's okay. And so look at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat, right, to the other side of the sea, this great crowd gathered around him. And he was beside the sea. And so this massive crowd is pressing in. And what happens, I imagine, this is how I see it. Jairus, Jairus, whatever. <laughs> he kind of splits the crowd. Because he is a person with notoriety. He has a title. He's important and he's walking towards Jesus. Now he's absolutely desperate. But you could imagine this person who's of great importance that people know. Because usually in the Gospels, we don't get a lot of first names. And so if he has a first name, that means in that culture from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he must have been incredibly important. And he walks up to Jesus. And what's the difficulty? Verse 22, and then came one of the rulers of the synagogue named Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly. Have you had that experience where Life was so desperate, you involuntarily fell at Jesus' feet. Have you had that? I think what it's describing is really an involuntary response of stress. When you're so overwhelmed, there's nothing you can do, and you're thinking about the challenges you're facing, and you just kind of, have you had that? You fall next to your bed. God, I've got no place else to go. I've experienced that a few years ago. At least in my mind, I was in a circumstance I, I didn't think I could change. And I had no idea what to do. And, and almost involuntary, my knees gave way and I just fell. And that's where Jairus is. He's at that place of just absolute desperation. I have no place to go. And again, why is he so desperate? Because he says in verse 23, I implore you, my little daughter, you can feel that, can't you? Is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be weighed well and live, there's, there's a dare to hope. Hope despite the circumstances. And this is a father who loves his daughter. Now Luke tells us this was his only daughter. And he comes to Jesus pleading with him, you can do, you can do something. You can change this picture. And it says in verse 24, and he went. 
Now, I want to pause there for a moment because if you're a disciple, you would say, of course. Of course Jesus went, right? He's got a title. He's got power. He has authority. He has character. He has a name. See, what's happening in the story are a set of values are conflicting with Jesus' values. The reason Jesus goes is not because he has a name, he has a title. He, Jesus goes because he has compassion. But that's not what Mark's readers would see, and, and that's not what the disciples would see. The disciples are looking at this and going, of course, Jesus will go. This is the kind of guy that God goes to, and God responds to. He's moral. He has his life together. But realize the kingdom of God takes the values of the world and it flips them upside down. That what the world prioritizes, the kingdom dismisses in a sense. And what the kingdom prioritizes, the world dismisses. When we see people, and we've talked about this, and this is something Mark is stirring in us, we put them into categories, right? Not you, I do. We put them into categories, don't we? That's how we make sense out of the world. These are people on the left and the right. These are the liberals, right? These are the conservatives. These are the people I align. These are my tribe. These are people who are not in my tribe. And we categorize them. And when we do that, and I'm not saying some of those things can't be important, but when you do that, you determine how you will care for them. Because Jesus doesn't put people into categories. Otherwise, Matthew, the tax collector, would not be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus sees the image of God in everyone. And therefore, he's able to see how the Holy Spirit is at work in someone's life. We don't. We're blind to it because we can't get past the way this guy voted or what they put on social media or who they identify with or whether it's hetero or homo. We don't see people and therefore we don't see the mustard seed of the kingdom of God which is at work in them and we don't have the privilege of walking with him. Do you see that? The disciples see this man and say, of course, Jesus is going to go with him. It creates this, in our story, a conflict. It's the reversal of values. Verse 24, and he went with him. But notice, and a great crowd followed and thronged about him. What Mark's emphasizing is how slow this story is moving. So if you are Jairus and your daughter is dying and the crowd is slowing him down, you're becoming impatient and your hope is beginning to dwindle by each step that Jesus takes. And then it gets worse because, pause, introduce story two, verse 25. Here's that, remember A, B, A, first story, second story, complete the story. Verse 25 is the beginning of the second story. And there was a woman, no name, who had a discharge of blood again for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather she grew worse. Now, there's a slide that puts all of these, Mark's kind of building an argument for, if you could go there, it's the last slide. And I want you to see how he's layering upon layering her predicament. Now, first of all, there was a woman, remember, Jairus is a man, and in that culture, men were respected. Women, in some ways, were ignored. She doesn't have the authority. And she had a discharge of blood, which means she was unclean. And to be unclean is not just to be separate, in a sense, from worship. We don't have a category for this. It's really hard to illustrate what that looks like today. But it kept you out of community. It isolated you. 
And notice, it wasn't just a momentary flow of blood. This is a 12-year chronic traumatic illness. It's, what that does is it creates a storyline in your life. You can go through a momentary illness, but when you have something chronic in your life, it starts to become your identity. And she suffered much under many physicians. She is, she's helpless. She's reached out in all the ways she can and no one can do anything. And now she's spent all she has. She is in poverty. And instead of getting better, have you been in that place where you've tried everything you can, you're doing all that you possibly know to do, and it's only day by day getting worse and worse and worse. That's, that's her situation. And if you compare Jairus with this woman, Jairus wins. Now, even for us today, in the sense that his situation, wouldn't you say, is worse than hers? His daughter's dying. So if they both walked into the ER and you started working with the woman and you ignored Jairus' daughter, that's called medical malpractice. That's a poor triage because here is somebody with a critical condition and here's somebody that has a, a terrible situation, but it's just, it's chronic. And Jesus does the unthinkable. He stops and he focuses on this woman. Verse 27, watch what she does. And she had heard, so she heard reports about Jesus. Hope is kindled. And she came up behind him in the crowd. And she touched his garment. She said, if I just touch his garment, I'll be made well. And immediately, it worked. Oh my gosh, the flow of blood. It dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. Everything in the way this woman approaches Jesus says one thing. I don't want to be seen. Why? That's what people told her. You are not to be seen. You're unclean, isolated from community. You're now poor, and you must have done something. Have you ever felt that chronic situation? You must have done something to be in a situation like this. She is, listen, culturally terrified, but she has the faith to just simply reach out and to touch Jesus, and it says, immediately she was healed. Now, pause. Is there anything special about his garments? Now, there are people that argue about priest garments, and I don't think so. Because Jesus doesn't emphasize the garments made you well. It's her faith. Because she's almost superstitious. But see, the object of her faith, and this is beautiful. You don't have to always get it right. You know, sometimes we think, I got to pray it perfectly. If I don't pray it perfectly, it's not gonna work. Does she pray it perfectly? No, she's got a little superstition, but she reaches out in faith and she touches. Not, it's not about her faith, it's the object. Faith is not about the intensity of yours. You can't just, ah, more faith, right? Sorry. It's about the object of faith, which is, is Jesus. And Jesus responds to her humility. But I wonder in that moment as her body began to respond, the doubt that must have flooded her, is this real? 12 years, right? You know what it's like to be messed up for 12 years, but as that healing comes in, she must be wondering, is this really happening? The shock that would have come over, and I imagine she would be really happy just to walk away right now. You know, this is great, it worked. 
Let me just quietly walk away, go home, make some dinner, celebrate and re-enter life. That's what she's hoping for. But again, her desperation is going to turn to despair. Before things get better for her, it's gonna get a heck of a lot worse because Jesus needs to heal the one thing that really needs to be healed. So notice in verse 30, and perceiving in himself that power had gone out, immediately, right? He's turning around in the crowd. She's someplace around him because she's in shock. I'm healed. Who touched me? How did she hear that question? Think about that. 12 years, disease, isolated. She heard that question through her story of shame. She heard that question and what she heard was probably condemnation. Who touched me? Rejection, fear, not because of the way that Jesus said it, but when we have struggled for a long time in desperation, you hear it through the narrative you're telling yourself. She hears it through shame. And there's actually three characters that show up in this moment. All of them hear Jesus' question differently, don't they? There's the disciples, there's Jairus, and there's the woman. To the disciples, it's a stupid question. <laughs> it's like, the question is, Jesus, who's not touching you? What do you mean, who's touching you? Now, to Jairus, Jairus, have I said it like five different ways? Yeah, you guys are counting for some of you are marking it off. That's good, it's okay. I'm imperfect. <laughs> He's thinking, what in the heck are you doing? Who touched you? Didn't I tell you my daughter is at the point of death and you're gonna stop and have a conversation with a crowd about who touched you? Every single minute that Jesus is waiting, his hope, you can, the desperation's growing, the anxiety, do you feel that, is, is welling up within him. And he's thinking, what in the heck are you doing, Jesus? This is, this is stupid. And then to the woman, she hears that question through the lens of her shame, her burdens, she doesn't hear it through the lens of hope. She's afraid. But notice what happens. Jesus calls out her fear. Verse 33. And the woman, knowing what had happened, did she have fear? But notice she still, she still came. This is not about not having fear. It's about in your fear moving towards Jesus. It's trusting trembling, she fell, just like Jairus, and told him the whole truth. It's very, it's very similar to what we see where Jairus starts off. But do you notice in verse 27, how did she approach Jesus the first time? You know, when Jairus came, how did he come? Right through the crowd, Red Sea. Comes up and he falls because he's in desperation. But when she, the woman, verse 27, comes to Jesus, did you notice which direction she came from? She came from behind. I don't want, I don't want to be seen. What is Jesus doing? He wants to see her. She needs to be seen to be healed. And notice, notice what he says. He says in verse 34, he says, daughter. That's healing. Now, we're going to get to that in just a moment. Skip down to verse 35. Because as this is going on, what happens? Jairus' desperation goes to dread, doesn't it? Things are going to get worse. As the woman's story gets worse, his story is getting worse. Watch what happens in verse 35. While he was speaking, meaning Jesus was speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, hey, your daughter that was dying is dead. 
And then why bother the teacher anymore? It's the worst possible news a parent could hear. Your daughter, your only daughter, has died. There's no hope. Why bother him anymore? Desperation, dread. Now let's look at deliverance. Jump back, verse 34, and look at what Jesus says to this woman. You know, this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus calls somebody daughter. That's pretty significant. There's one place where Jesus calls somebody son. It's earlier in Mark's gospel. It's the paralytic. But he looks at her, right? So she's hiding. First word she hears, not condemnation, not guilt. He looks at her and says, you're mine. I see you. Do you know what intimacy is? Intimacy, into me see. All right, come on. All right, it's good. I didn't make it up. Someone else did. That's what it means to have intimacy. You, you see me. What must that have felt like for the first time in front of a crowd where she feels ashamed and isolated? He says, no, you belong and you matter. How far will a father go to love his daughter? Well, how far would Jairus go? Because realize Jairus is a synagogue leader. How do the religious leaders feel about Jesus? They got Jesus flags at home. Can't wait for him to show up in Jerusalem. No, they say, He's, he's not the Messiah. You know, he's not even from God. He's worthy of death. He is taking incredible social and cultural risks, but he sees something in Jesus. He sees through the eyes of faith, not through the eyes of culture. And he's willing to come to her. And likewise, Jesus is saying to this, in a sense, fatherless daughter, you are mine. And what has healed you? Do you notice? And he's saying this to everyone. There's a reason it's public. Because she wants to isolate, but he has to show her her worth and value. Your faith, your trust in me has healed you. There is something good in you. I see it. And it's worthy of my love. Do you start to see how all 12 years of shame and guilt is starting to unravel? Do you start to see that the physical healing was just the start? How many of us walk in life and we see every relationship through a story? It's the story of what happened to us. If you knew that I had this flow of blood for 12 years, what she tried to do, she tried to hide it, of course, right? Because you can't be in community if you're unclean. For 12 years, she has been careful every moment, every time she's talking to someone, I wonder if they notice. I wonder if they can see, does that begin to start stir something in you. But how does God see her? Does he see her shame? Does he see her guilt? No, he sees, he sees her as a daughter. And her faith reaches out and her faith heals her because that's what she needs. She needs to be known. She needs to be loved. It's a fascinating, absolutely fascinating story. And that's the center of the story, guys. I know there's more coming. We're going to finish it up real quick. We like to get to the raising of the dead. That's crazy, right? This is the miraculous moment. Remember, the first story begins. Second story is the point. And so what happens when Jairus finds out that his daughter has died? What is Jesus? What is Jesus? Not Jason. He's not here. That's up here. What does he say to her? Right? Verse 36. 
overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear. That's easy. Instead, believe. Like who? Like the disciples? Like the crowd? No, like this, this woman. She is the example of faith. Verse 39. And when he had entered, so he goes to the house. There's still something more here. Why are you making so much commotion? The child's not dead. He's sleeping. Everyone laughed because they know the difference between death and life. Why did he say that? Sometimes in the Bible, sleeping is a metaphor for death. But I think really in verse 43, he didn't want this story to get out. Did you notice that at the end? It's like, don't tell anyone. Why? Because he's not interested in being popular or creating a crowd. Otherwise, he'd take the bed right out into the crowd, heal her right there. But that's not what the point is. It's not about Jesus raising the dead. It's about the compassion of Jesus towards a father. We tend to focus on the miracle, which it does say something about Jesus, that he doesn't have power just in this life. He has power in the next. But the focus of it is Jesus' compassion and mercy towards someone who has lost his daughter, verse 40, and they laughed at him. And he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he says, Talitha, which really means little, little lamb. It's what any father or mother would say to their daughter any morning that she woke up. This isn't a special incantation. It's not superstition. He just says, hey, little girl, get up. And she arises. And the little girl got up, verse 42, began to walk, for she was 12 years of age. And there immediately, everybody was amazed in the room, and strictly he charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. What is this story about? One, it shows us about who Jesus is. We've been looking at his authority, authority over a storm, authority over an evil spirit, authority over shame and guilt and someone's Condition for 12 years, authority over death. It tells us something about the Jesus who has compassion for us. He's big enough. Do you see that? But what's the problem? I have a really hard time hearing him when I'm in the storm, when I'm around that unclean spirit, when I'm going through this guilt and shame, when my daughter has died. What happens? It's and that's natural. God's not judging us in that. But he's saying, trust me, look at who I am. I have compassion. Listen to me. Are you willing to listen? And, and church, that's what's going to rescue us in this day. Because we listen to the news and we just, we just take it in, right? Do we listen to the Spirit? What does this moment need? Sometimes what we need to ask is, what does it look like to follow Jesus right now? Not what does my church tell me? Even what does Jason tell me? Holy Spirit, what does it look like to show up? What does it look like to love? What does it look like to represent you? That's what a disciple does. So one thing it tells us is it shows us something about the nature of Jesus. But the last thing it shows us is that desperation leads to transformation if we dare to hope in Jesus. Desperation is a place where faith is born. Does that seem contradictory to you? Desperation is a place, it can be, a place where desperation leads to transformation. Why? What's the one thing that desperation shows you that every other day you want to put nice clothes on, hide from everyone else in this room and in your company and in your home? You want to hide your needs. One of the hardest thing it is for a human being to say is, I need you. 
And the easiest thing to say is, I got this. Come on now, who am I speaking to? I got it. This addiction, I got it. Marriage, I can figure it out. Jesus is showing us our true condition. We are always in a place, in a sense of desperation, meaning in a place of need, but we don't see it. And what, is, what, what pushes Jesus away is pride. I don't need you. What draws him near? It's need. Jesus, I need you. I need you. Do you know how to take your need to Jesus? He loves to draw near to those who are humble in heart and he pours out grace. And then second church, this is where it really has to happen. You gotta start expressing your need in here. Do you know what changes people? It's not your strengths. It's often your faith and your need where people change. They see where you are and they see how you're trusting in Jesus and they see a miracle. They see faith. They see God at work. We have to learn not just to trust Jesus with our need. The only way you're sometimes gonna change is you gotta bring it out in the open. What will that cause in you? Can we be honest for a minute? It causes fear. Fear. But what does he want for you? He wants to heal you. And so often in the church and in life, I need to keep it to myself. Just like the woman, right? I'm gonna, I want the healing where I touch him from behind, you know, where I can kind of sneak in, do a little stealth thing and kind of get in the crowd and get my, my healing and then I can get out and no one has to know what happened in my life. And Jesus, what is he gonna do? Hey, that's not the healing I'm after. I'm glad you feel better. I want you to come in front of everybody and I want them to see how much I love you. And I wanna call you my daughter. Church, if we're not willing to bring that out before each other and before God, that's where churches get transformed. That's where people say, there's something different in that community. I need that. That's what we're called to. And the promise this morning is the one who raises the dead, who walks on water. He longs to meet that need. He's a God of compassion. Hey, this morning we're gonna celebrate communion. And this isn't an add-on to the end of our service. I know sometimes like three songs, sermon, communion, right? It's kind of, it can get rote, doesn't it? We can get stale, but it's an opportunity for us to listen. I don't, I don't know what, God stirred up a lot in me this week as I walked through this. I see myself in this woman. I see my desperation. And, and that's where we have to take it in faith as we hold these elements together. We need to take it to him. And so if you didn't grab the elements, guys, it's okay. Please come on up front or in the back. Let's grab those elements, hold them together. And as the worship team is playing, we're gonna just hold those elements and then together celebrate and recognize that we're accepted through Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. It covers our guilt and it covers our shame. Let's bring our need to our Father.